Vox Bus. Really, conflict is just a messenger in the system. It's just messages that say something matters. So my whole system says, this matters, this matters, this matters. And I'm calling it conflict. And I turn on my safety brain. And I think I need to protect myself from you. But if I can pull back for a moment and say, oh, this is a message in the system that says, there's something I need clarity on. There's something that matters here and I don't have clarity. Then I can have a conversation with you about how to get to that clarity. Welcome everybody to the podcast, Relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Prebo Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one. Partners, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. Welcome everybody to this episode, Designing Collaborative Relationships. And I have a wonderful conversation with Maureen McCarthy. And Maureen is a very special lady. She is the director of the Center for Collaborative Awareness here in Asheville, North Carolina. And her and her husband, co-created the Blueprint of We collaboration process, which is used worldwide to build and sustain healthier, more resilient business and personal relationships in groups large and small. And on today's episode, we discuss how to design healthy relationships. We talk about the neuroscience of the safety brain and the connected brain so that we can have the conversations that matter to better custom design our life and our work. And Maureen discusses her rare genetic lung disease and how she uses these principles to manage her pain and live a vibrant life. And I can sure attest that she is a vibrant lady. And before we get onto the episode, I wanna mention again, I wanna answer questions from you, my listeners in future podcasts. So I have a form for you to do that. You can go to my website, heartsharecounseling.com, click on the podcast page, and below you will see a button to leave a voicemail question. You can leave that with your name or you can leave it anonymous, but I look forward to hearing your questions. I wanna also thank today's sponsors, Gyro Creative out of Detroit, Michigan, And Gyro is an identity studio. They design identities to be shared and lived based on truth and beauty. And they seek to uncover fundamental truths about who their clients are and what they value, transforming them into verbal and visual expressions that incite action, unite community, build culture, and inspire change. So check them out at gyrocreative.com. And I'd like to also mention my other sponsor for today's episode, Farm to Home Milk. Farm to Home Milk is an Asheville-based milk distribution company of grass-fed GMO-free milk. They serve many of Asheville's local restaurants and coffee shops. You can buy the milk at Whole Foods here or French Broad Food Co-op. And the secret of this company's success is their focus on personal relationships that they have with their customers. I know the founder, and I know that he is focused on those personal relationships. And I love it because on the side of their trucks is the phrase, compassion is possible. 
This is how they aim to be in a relationship of sustenance. So check them out at farmtohomemilk.com. Okay, everybody, I hope you enjoyed this episode, Designing Collaborative Relationships. Let's talk about it. So here we are in your beautiful home in Flat Rock. Greg was telling me a lot about, about your home and how you welcome people so wonderfully. And so thank you so much for being open to, to meet with me on this Sunday. Well, I've been tangentially aware of all you've been doing for years, and mm. I'm grateful for it, and I support it in every possible way. So just the ability to have a conversation with you about the kinds of things we're both really passionate about in the world is a good time. Mm. So let's just have a good time. Yeah. And one of that, of course, is relationships. And I know from years ago, we were talking about 17 years ago was one of the last times that we had some conversation and you were developing or had developed what was called the State of Grace document, which has changed right now to the Blueprint of We document. And But you, that came out of your relationship with your husband, Zell. Is that yeah. true? So it's a collaboration document and process. It's a way for people, any number of people, whether it's a couple or um, an executive team or a community to actually design their relationship. So we design cars and furniture and smartphone apps, um, but we don't actually think about designing a relationship. And so how do you begin to have a written capture that evolves over time? It's not a static document, but how do you sit down and say, like the idea of pulling relationship off the shelf that we had 20 or 50 years ago it just isn't an option anymore. Like we're not, our world is so much more complex and we're moving faster and there's so many more things coming at us. That relationship in the old way of like, oh, we all know exactly how to do this or, you know, my parents did it. Okay, I'll figure out basically my version of that. Um, just doesn't feel like an option anymore. So the idea of being able to use design principles to say, okay, who are we? Why am I in this? What's this about? Is an incredibly delightful experience, like to realize you can custom design what this relationship is. It's a whole different concept than a prenup, huh? (laughs) Right. Oh, completely. Yes. And actually there are lawyers and mediators around the world that are using it. So it's actually being used as a legal contract Mm. um, in lieu of traditional marriage contracts. Uh, Many judges have told us that stands up in a court of law, interestingly enough, but has the people involved, right? And Mm. you're designing it. Mm. So the year that the whole concept came to be. I met Zell. I had actually come out of a 10-year marriage to my first husband, Bill, who is still one of my best and dearest friends on the planet. (laughs) And we actually, in the process of trying to transition out of our relationship, we went to the bookstore to find a do-it-yourself divorce book because we didn't want the traditional, like, we're on opposite sides, we're enemies, each go get a lawyer and fight it out. Well, at the time, there's a lot more stuff available to people today about how to Mm. gracefully come out of a relationship. (laughs) But at the time, the one book we found was a do-it-yourself divorce book. And on the back, it said in big red letters, do not show this book to your spouse. So keep good information from your enemy, right? And it was so shocking to me that we had to really work the process to have a graceful transition of, in essence, what I think is our relationship container. So I will be in relationship with anyone the rest of my life, as long as I can conjure up a memory of them. 
relationship doesn't end That's right. as long as we can remember someone or remember some portion of it. So I can either have a healthy relationship or not. And with the case of Bill, like we have kids. So that's one reason to stay, to create a new relationship container. But even if we didn't have kids, I think it's really important, even if the relationship container is, I'm going to wave at you from across the street for the next, you know, 50 years if I happen to see you. I'm not saying it needs to be intertwined, Mm -hmm. but it should be designed. Like, how do you create a new container that actually fits people? Because I find that people are not the problem in relationships. It's often the container we put ourselves in that creates the stress in a relationship. And the expectations that we put on each other. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I heard John Lee say one time, an expectation is a yet-to-be-realized resentment. (laughs) That's a perfect (laughs) description. Yeah. So coming out of that, I met Zell. I wasn't, it was the year I was supposed to die from, I've got a rare genetic fatal lung disease. Um, It's only found in women. It's actually hormonally driven. I only have 10% lung capacity left, so I've been on uh, oxygen 24 hours a day for, gosh, I think 15 years now. Went on it in my 30s. It was a process coming into that year where my doctor's like, okay, nobody really lives any longer than this, so like, get all your affairs in order. So I wasn't leaving my marriage to go find someone better or, you know, find someone else kind of thing. So meeting Zell, who's my current husband, was a complete surprise and we not we were not into each other at all at the beginning. Like we met through a mutual friends. There was not some attraction or anything. We were just sort of in the same kind of circle. And as we decided to sort of explore, like, oh, do you want to just have dinner tonight? You've got business near my house. Let's go get something to eat. It was not an attraction. We were fascinated by like, okay, that was fun. Do you want to do it again tomorrow? There was no like future or forever myth, first of all, because... I was going to die soon. (laughs) So there was no reason to look at some like, will he measure up against forever? And he was sort of depressed from a relationship that didn't come to be that he had really wanted to be in. And so it was just sort of this like, let's do this in the meantime. So about three months in, as things get more interesting, we had a conversation one night about how if we don't have this forever myth of like, oh, you get engaged, you get married, you have the white picket fence. Like, what are we doing? Like, Mm. we have to design something for ourselves, because none of the traditional things are an option for us. And um, that night, we happened to watch a film of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, which, you know, for for a lot of younger people, they don't even know who Fred and Ginger are. But they were an amazing couple who danced in Hollywood films in the 30s and 40s and blew everybody away. And she was way more amazing for them because she danced backwards yes, exactly. on heels. <laughs> But we had this conversation about how, imagine if our relationship could be as graceful and effortless Mm. as Fred and Ginger. Like they built a foundation, they put the work in to dance that well together. But literally when you watch them, they make you feel like you could get up and do it. It feels that effortless. And so it was a beautiful conversation we had that night about like, okay, let's say that our only goal in the relationship, if we don't have this other stuff, is to be in a state of grace with each other the rest of our lives. And Grace meant Fred and Ginger's dance. Mm. So I went home that night and I thought, you know, everybody would say that at the beginning of a relationship, that that's what they're looking for and that's what their goal is and that's what they're going to do. That's what will happen. But it often doesn't. And I thought, okay, if we were to build the foundation like Fred and Ginger did, what would ours look like of relationship design in essence? What's that foundation? So I wrote my half of what became the first, what we called at the time, the state of grace document. And there are five components that I write about that now 
It's being used in 138 countries around the world in every language and culture you can imagine, from couples to families and schools to global corporations and startups. At the time, I had no idea. <laughs> but I sat down and wrote a little bit about, there were a few things I knew I wanted to capture. There were you know, billions of people on the planet. Why was I choosing Zelle? Why now? Why this type of relationship versus just friendship? Like I wanted to capture the why I'm in. Oftentimes we sort of fall into relationship without actively choosing it or knowing why we're there. It's not, it's not mindful design. It just sort of happens. So I wanted to capture that. And then the second component is called interaction styles and warning signs. And I thought, you know, if I tell him now, this is what I look like when I'm crazy stressed out. I talk like this. I act like this. I'll do this. Like I've done it a zillion times before. It's not about you. Like this is my habit loop and pattern when in stress. So he's going to know what he's buying. Yeah. Like here it is. Let me tell you before we've ever had a problem, like what this looks like. But also let me tell you what I need in that moment that my brain literally doesn't have access to. I will not be able to tell you what I need when I need it the most. So how can I write it down and capture it ahead of time? And on the flip side, because it's also, let me tell you what I look like when I'm having a completely inflow day. I act like this. I talk like this. I look like this. I feel like this. This is what I want you to know. And here's some invitations and boundaries on how to help me have more of those days. So it's both. It's like, here's this full spectrum of how I show up. And here's, my, here's how I want to invite you to be part of that. Now, it's never a demand. It's just an invitation. But I wanted to capture all of what I did know. And my gosh, our, our blueprint today. So at one point, as this spread around the world, the term state of grace stopped fitting for a lot of different languages and cultures. So we ended up changing the name to the blueprint of we. So you're creating a blueprint of a design document for the relationship. So our blueprint today that Zell and I have looks nothing like the one we started 20 years ago because we've updated and changed it mm. because we've evolved so much over time. And that's what people can constantly do is they yeah. update it and they just exactly. change it based on exactly. new dreams, new ways of being. Yeah. Hmm. So the other thing I really wanted to capture was about values because no one will ever like frustrate you or delight you unless they've honored or stepped on something you value ever. Like our value, we're not born with values. They come out of experiences over the course of our life that something either did happen or it didn't happen. And then we realize it's important to us. So I wanted us to share our values, but then I wanted us to design the relationship through the lens of those values, our individual ones, and then talking about like, what are our joint values? And what's interesting, what came out of this whole process. So I, I wrote my half of that. There's a few other pieces. There's sort of a, there's another section called questions for peace and possibility, where you capture your most emotionally intelligent self on paper ahead of time because you can't get to it when you need it, right? So I wrote all that stuff down. I shared it with him the next day. And I said, I think if we start with this information and then we keep sort of adding to this document, like maybe we can, you know, meet this goal of like, I want to be in a state of grace the rest of my life. So he wrote his half. Um, we ended up buying a journal and kind of putting it in there and then just updating it over time. And then we did our first one with the kids as a family when they were four mm. and six years old. They're now 25 and 26. So they've been doing blueprints as a family with their friends, with their significant others for years. Oh, wonderful. It's really cool to watch. But it became a, a way to say, not only are we looking at who we are as individuals when we're together, but how do you design this we entity? There's three elements, three entities in any relationship. There's you, me, and we. 
And I love the fact that when we can consciously understand like the heartbeat and the personality of that we entity, and we can design it and grow it and get the feel of it and move it. Take care of it. I tell couples that their relationship is that third entity. Yes. So speak relationally. Don't just all of a sudden be radically honest just for the sake of it. (laughs) Speak relationally because take care of your relationship. Yeah. Mm. So what, how do you tell people about that? We, how do you get them? What are some of the ways that you get them to really be present in that and thinking about the we? Well, I I also think about what kind of partner does each person Mm -hmm. want to be instead of what kind of partner they want to be, uh, want to have. Right. Right. So one is really getting clear on that. You know, if I want to be a compassionate partner, great. But how does that show up in my life? So the we part is if I want to be patient or compassionate, how can I have that opportunity in my relationship? So then I actually see myself be a patient partner in the we, in the way that I'm relating to my partner or the way I'm relating mm. to other people. Nice. So I have them try to step into the, the person and partner that they want to be relationally yeah. so they can see it and feel it. Yeah, that's yeah. beautiful. Mm. And what a difference that makes Yeah, yeah. in any situation you're in. Because part of it is what you said earlier is first looking at instead of solving the problems, it's like, what do you want? Yeah. Start feeding what you not what you want, not what you don't want. Yeah. And so many couples and organizations, like you yes. say, go right after what's broken. I know. And it, that's a fascinating one for me because, so my lung disease, I have massive amounts of physical pain every day, 24 hours a day. Mm. And I'm highly allergic to all pain medication. <sighs> um, so I can't even get a lung transplant, even though I have 10% lung capacity left because you kind of need pain medication after they rip your chest open. <laughs> and how are we doing now without the oxygen? I, I don't have my oxygen yeah. on right now, so the sound is... Yeah. I'm doing okay. It's okay. it's amazing how I can sort of live above what goes on in this body. Yeah. But what's been interesting to, to understand, I'm a social scientist who looks at collaboration through the lens of neuroscience. So I like knowing like how our brains are working when we're in groups. And what I notice most of all is that in it's in relationships that I either can manage the pain in my body or not, that I can either be really present with people or not when my relationships are healthy. And my relationships, as you know, start with the one in my head, like the chatterbox in my Mm -hmm. head that like is my roommate that will never move out. Like there's actually a blueprint of me, just like the blueprint of we, there's a blueprint of me where you create a document, a design document for the relationship between you and the voice in your head. And what do you call that? The noise mess or what? Uh, uh-huh. Well, there's noise in the system is what uh-huh. we often refer to right. it. It's like there is noise in the system, both delightful and stressful, but how do you use that noise to actually create something that you really desire? Hmm. And so it's really been interesting to watch as I'm, moving out in the world and most of my playground is in business. So I'm working with a lot of organizations and people in that perspective, but because through the blueprint, through the work we've done, it's our personal relationships that have like flourished so much. People are always asking us to work in that arena too. So I love looking at the fact that there really is no difference between our business and our personal relationships. But what's been really cool is noticing that when I go into a situation feeling like there is something broken or there's a problem to be solved. I literally, like, I can't lift my hands above my head. I can't breathe as well. I can't take a shower. I can't get dressed. The pain level in my body is so outrageous. Like sitting here right now, I've had a migraine 24 hours a day for 18 years. It's one of the side effects of my lung disease. Mm. Like literally 24 hours a day. The level of pain I feel right now, like years ago would have sent me to the emergency room. But as I started working on how my mind relates to 
the world and to other people and in my relationships. It's the relationships that are the best way for me to manage pain and overwhelm and feel calmer and feel more joy and be really present in the world and still be alive because I'm not even supposed to be here. It's kind of crazy. So is that when you're just thinking about the positive aspects of your relationship, the appreciation, the gratitude, or how, how, do, how do you change that pain body to when you're focusing on relationships to ease that? So the way I like to sort of describe it for me is the, like I wake up every day as the creator of my life and there's a landscape in front of me. And what my culture and our humanness has taught us is that you scan the landscape for problems it's part of problem solution model. It's like you scan for problems and you go after the solution. We're animals. Yeah, exactly. And it's a very seductive idea because when you get the dopamine hit of finding the solution, it feels like you're moving in the right direction. But I often say I'm like the princess in the pea. I feel pain and stress way earlier than other people do. And I know that when I get into that space of looking at a problem, I can't manage the pain. It, it spikes so enormously and I can't breathe. Like literally I have to stop and do nothing because I can't breathe. So for me, if I wake up at the, as the creator of my life and I look at the landscape and the landscape can be World War III, like World War III is going on in my body right now. It's not like some rosy landscape. But when I look at that landscape and instead I'm focused on what I desire, then I move out of this problem idea my whole brain lights up in a completely different way. I literally have more of my brain accessible when I'm looking for what I desire. And then I can use my creative energy to design or invent what it is I desire. So it is a positive perspective, but it's also more than that because the positive perspective is the first step in saying, okay, I want to look at this differently. But until I take whatever stress is on the landscape, it's not about saying like, oh, look at this pretty landscape, push that all to the side. Mm -hmm. I actually want to use the stress in my system and use that to get me what I desire, to design from that. So I, stress is an amazing thing. Like it, it's, it's not a bad thing, but we're just really not taught, especially in relationship, how to use it. Right. So for me, I'm on a daily basis, I'm looking at my own mind, how I'm seeing the world, like how am I viewing these things? How am I looking at something as a problem versus des as a desire? So it's an inquiry and a questioning and curiosity and it's interest, right? very much Because that's a, a lot with the stress with couples or, or stress yes. in organizations. The aspect is get more curious about what's going on. I remember I told the story of meditating at a Zen monastery and it was the first time I did it and my knees were just on fire because <laughs> I was thinking about the pain. Right. But when I got curious about the sensation, yes. it, it went away. So I think that that's an aspect of getting curious about a conflict, getting curious about what's happening in the stress with people. Then you don't focus on the stress. You start focusing on the curiosity of yes. what can be achieved through the desire because of what Because your you brain want. is literally using different neural circuits to process that. So it's not just a like flipping a switch necessarily, like, oh, I'm just not thinking about pain anymore. You're literally lighting up parts of your brain that allow that to happen. And one of the things I think is so cool about how our mind works, like our mind is a meaning-making machine, right? So there's like a filing system of my mind that has all these different files in it. So I say I meet you for the first time. I literally take all that is you in through my senses and I go through my own filing system of my mind. I pull all the files that I think make meaning of who you are. Like, this is what I think about you. This is how I'm going to react to you. Whether I think I need to protect myself or based connect. Based on your past, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All based on my past. It, whether I experienced it or saw it in a movie or read it in a book. Right. Like, it's all that filing system. And one of the things I love about the blueprint of we and this whole sort of desire invention idea is if I meet you and do a blueprint with you, 
you get to hand me your files. I don't want to base it on my filing system. You tell me what your behavior means. You tell me what works for you and what doesn't. You tell me what you want the design of this to be. And if we come together in this relationship and you want one thing and I want something else, I would rather figure out how to build a bridge to that while we're both in a calm spot. Mm. Um, And the blueprint is something like, we've had couples who have been together for 30 years do a blueprint. There might be a process, there's a process we created called the curiosity chain, where we help people get curious about the stress running around in their mind in order to help them get back to a peaceful place in order to write their blueprint. But that, that process of being able to hand over our files to one another and design from that place it just opens up so many more possibilities. It eliminates a lot of assumptions yeah. that I would have about you instead of you telling me directly, yes. now I'm working with you who you are. Yeah, and compassion and mm. empathy. All mm. those things become accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm imagining that even, like you said, couples that have been together for 30 years or so, they get to work with who they are now, the evolution of who, if they get in touch with who they are and express it, now they can see who they are as a couple together more Yeah. instead of based on, some of the past. Exactly. Yeah. Because we often ask couples to actually create a little ceremony of closing out the relationship they've been in, like give gratitude for the 30 years or the year or whatever they've been together. Like whatever that is, let's end it. And now let's design from anew. Like where are we now? What do we do? What do we want to design now? What does this particular landscape make possible for us? Let's start here which is an incredibly exciting place to be in because you realize how many possibilities are out there for you. Oh, it is, yeah. And you do start noticing, like, what are the habit loops and the patterns that you put on? Okay, now let's look at them and figure out, like, what, what is the meaning behind some of these things? Um, let's get curious. Like, let's be interested instead of afraid of something um, so that I'm not so triggered by you, I can understand it. And oftentimes, if Zell is triggered by something in me, when we have the design conversation... His mind, so I, I look at sort of the way our mind works is there's two main neural networks that happen is our human evolution. We either need to protect ourselves or we need to connect. So we call that the safety brain and the connected brain neural circuitry. And when, my, when I'm triggered by someone, my safety brain neural circuitry goes on. I don't have access to my compassion and my empathy and my way to make this better with you. Because in a safety brain world, if I need to, you know, if that was created in my system, it was because I needed to, you know, run from the bear. Like when a bear's standing in front of me and he wants to attack me, I don't want to be compassionate and think about how hungry he must be. And, and two choices. Flight, yeah. Flight. So I understand my safety brain. I love it. I want it to be useful when I need it. But I really find, especially with the body I live in, that having a connected brain as my default mode is so much easier to and be alive. So that to switch that, go yeah. from a safety brain default to a collaborative brain. It was connected that brain. Connected brain. Yeah. yeah. And I have to do that by getting curious. I have to look into my own filing system of what makes meaning of your behavior. So even if you and I are a couple and we've been together for years, I still have a filing system of what I think your behavior means. But when we stop and sort of begin to have the conversation about it, my safety brain can calm down a little bit. My connected brain neural circuitry can come online. And now we can have a conversation about what that behavior means and what the, what's the value that feels like it's being met or unmet in relation to that behavior. And it's an exploration that I love, like part of Part of doing the blueprint with Zell for all these years now, we've been together 20 years now, 
is I became what I call a zealthropologist. So I'm an anthropologist of zeal. That's wonderful. Like in getting curious, I started thinking about like, okay, if I'm like studying this person, like why they do what they do, not with like, oh, you're driving me nuts or I don't like that behavior or you've triggered me again, but like, oh, how interesting. You're like, so Zell's name is actually short for gazelle, like an African deer. Mm. So I, I think about like, okay, here's the gazelle on the African savanna, and I'm like studying his move, moves and behaviors. And to this day, 20 years later, I'm still learning so many new things. Like one of the things early on that we talked about in our design was he often would tiptoe around the house. And I said, I'm really curious, like what makes you tiptoe? Like we're it's just the two of us here. Like why are you? T-? He's like, I don't tiptoe. I'm like, no, really, you do. He's like, no, seriously, I don't tiptoe. I'm like, okay, next time you do it, I'll point it out. And that's, to me, what we call collaborative awareness. So our organization is actually called the Center for Collaborative Awareness because we realized as we went into organizations, we'd get a group of really self-aware people together who are super smart, but things still weren't working well. Mm-hmm. And so there's that space beyond self-awareness. It includes self-awareness, but collaborative awareness. By becoming collaboratively aware with Zell. Like I could notice the tiptoeing, which he didn't even know he was doing. He could start questioning like, wow, what are the things going on in me when I tiptoe? Oh, this is happening. Like he grew up in a house where he needed to sort of keep everything down low. And so we start exploring what some of these things are about that we don't even notice without being collaboratively aware and then start to design that we entity based on what we're getting curious about and, and where now, we want to design. It's wonderful. I feel really connected to Zell because <laughs> my, my wife, when I met her, she would say that I really walk on my toes. And I'm like, no, oh, I don't. Oh, that's so funny. And then I would observe myself no and then start walking on my heels. I went from a, wearing a <laughs> 10 and a half shoe to a 12 because <gasps> oh my all of a sudden gosh. I realized, oh my God, I'm I'm cramping because I'm walking on my toes Isn't when that I start relaxing. fascinating? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. I love it. Oh, I can't I, wait I for you to tell him that. Yeah. I'm wondering, uh, maybe we can share the same shoes. I'm wondering, how do you get people to inquire, to be more interested in in, in inquisitive and get out of, you know, the mode Mm. of protection? Well, for me, I think, so I like visuals. I'm a very visual person. So I sort of see it like, it's what I call a flashlight in a dark cave. (laughs) And it's the idea that if you went into a cave exploring and you were in there for hours and then you suddenly realize you couldn't find your way out and you're sort of panicking. And after hours and hours of looking and looking, you know, you find yourself like balled up in a corner, just like crying, thinking, okay, this is the end of me. I don't know how I'm getting out of here. And after hours of that, someone finally comes in and they have a huge flashlight, right? And they're shining it in your face. And at first it hurts and you don't like it and you just want to push them away. But if you can calm yourself down for just a second, you can take that flashlight that they have in their hand and turn it around and they are your way out. So for me, I want to pay attention to what triggers me in the world. Where do I have judgment about my spouse, my kids, the world, whatever it is? Because those flashlights are just, it's a light into my subconscious filing system that tells me how I'm making meaning of the world. So to me, you can get curious first by just going into your own mind. Like what is, I call it pinging you. What am I seeing out in the world that either delights me? Because if I, if I watch you do something and I think like, wow, Prepo is an incredibly generous person. I'm really fascinated by that. That's pinging me as much as like someone who does something I don't like. And I can first go internal and say, okay, why is generosity like something that's pinging me? And in the process of the curiosity chain that we created, you actually go through 
asking yourself, like, where do I want to turn the volume up or down on the very behavior that's pinging me? Mm. So let's let's play with that. Let's get curious about that. So generosity. Where is some place I can play with, experiment with, where I can turn generosity up a little bit somewhere in my life? Like, I must want more or less of it somewhere, maybe both, because I'm noticing it in you. Because someone else didn't even notice how generous you were, but I did. So I play with that. I figure out, I do an experiment of like a week or 30 days around generosity. Where do I want to do more of it? Where do I even want to do less of it? Maybe I'm giving myself away somewhere and your generosity is also pinging that. On the flip side, (laughs) okay, so here's a funny story of a goofy way I use the curiosity chain. I was watching a TV show with Zell and there was an actor in the show. I liked the show, but the actor was like completely annoying me. And I said, Zell, like, I'm so tired of him. He like did a show years ago and he feels like he's the same character all these years later. And he just rests on his laurels. Like he's not even, he's just dialing it in. And Zell's like, you might want to use the curiosity chain on that one. I was like, okay, let me see what that's about. So I looked at turning the volume up or down on resting on my laurels. Mm. Like, okay, where am I resting on? Where, if I turn the volume up on resting on my laurels, like where might I want to do that more? So I'm a, I'm a pioneering creative energy person. I'm not someone who will ever like take the binder off the shelf and deliver the same thing I did a year ago or 10 years ago. And sometimes it's exhausting to constantly be in creation mode. And I realize, mm-hmm. like, rest on your laurels, Maureen. Like, just know that the design you did six months ago is still good. You need to rest on your laurels more often instead of creation, creation, right? So I played around with that in my life. And then I also realized on the flip side, where is somewhere I don't want to rest on my laurels like this actor was doing? Because I don't know this actor. I'm never going to meet him. It's not like a relationship I have, but he's still pinging me, right? So I realized there was a friend of mine who every time we get on the phone, I'm sort of like not really present. I'm just resting on my laurels of the relationship we've had for years, and I'm not really in it. And so I decided as my experiment, like the next few times we're on the phone, I'm going to be ultra present and really listen and really be with her and be creating relationships that's that's today, not something based on years before. And man, what conversations we had when mm. I did that, like what a shift. So there's a way to get curious with anybody. So whether it's your spouse and there's things that ping you, they are just flashlights into your subconscious mind and it's your subconscious mind that makes sense of the world. So let me get curious there and I can start with things that either make me happy or make me unhappy. They're all going to tell me something about the way I make meaning of the world. And what do you do when some people have shame when they're doing that inquiry? You know, that comes in, they're thinking about the inquiry, but they automatically you go to judgment, self-judgment. Because I know for me, when I started having that inner critic go, I need to ask learner type questions, not judger type questions, not why in the hell did you do that, people? It's more curious. Hey, I wonder why you did that. What's going on for you? Even the tone is different. So how do you switch that in that moment? Well, self-compassion really helps me switch mm-hmm. that. You know, to one is I don't want, I don't, I can feel like you're saying, I like that ping instead of triggered. Right, I want to use that right. more if I, you don't mind. Because yeah. it's, it's nice because the trigger sounds I know, really right? like, it's supposed to, ooh, that pinged me, right? Mm-hmm. So when I feel that ping of maybe, a little bit more violence, subtle violence that's coming in because I'm not giving myself any kind of slack. I'm not nurturing myself. I'm not letting myself just be a human being. Yep. Then I realize that I need to start giving myself more love in that way, self-compassion. 
Because those are just files too. I'm pulling on the same filing system about myself that I pull on with other people. And I can put a flashlight into the, like, why, why would I be violent with myself? How can I start getting curious about some behavior I'm doing to me? Yeah. Where did that voice come from? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it really does help me. The more I do that as a practice, the more I pull myself out of judgment. Like, again, because I'm visual, I like to see it as sort of like the difference between living in the eye of the storm and beginning to move the storm two miles off the coast. When I can just stop for a moment, and I think anything starts with an awareness phase. Like if I notice that I have violent thoughts against myself, like I don't need to suddenly go, oh, I know better than that. I should change that because it just doesn't work that way. So (laughs) again, another visual I use, like if you're standing at the top of a snowy hill and you have a sled in your hand, right? If you put the sled down the left side of the hill and you go down just two or three times, After that, the sled literally, like there's a rut in the snow, you don't steer anymore, it just goes down. Well, our neural pathways are built the same way. I think a thought a few times and my brain says, oh Maureen, let me think that for you 24 hours a day. I'll I'll subconsciously do the work for you, which is great. I I don't want to relearn to brush my teeth every day. But if I realize that that rut in the snow is me saying negative things to myself, step one is I've got to pick up the sled. Like I can't move the sled anywhere else until I pick it up. And so I'll often ask people to go through an awareness phase, like, okay, for the next week or two weeks or three weeks, just notice every time you do it, just go, oh, there's me thinking a crummy thought about myself again. There's me saying that terrible stuff to myself. With like, no attachment to it, like a judgment or yeah, even Or you know, don't even change it. To, don't yeah, do just, anything. There I go. There just, I go. Well, there it is again. There mm-hmm. it is again. Fascinating. Um, you begin to move the storm off the coast when you can just be aware of it, because otherwise our brain just runs the pattern. It's a habit loop to, to say those things to ourselves. We're not actively saying, I don't wake up going, huh, what terrible things can I say about myself today? It's just a habit loop. It's a sled down the snowy hill. So then if I have an, a phase of an awareness, after a bit of time of, of that awareness, now I can create a, a place in the snow on the right side of the hill. And this is the same kind of topic, but with something that feels more healthy or life-giving to what I'm thinking about. Because ultimately, I want people to have an option. If you want a safety brain thought of like, that feels stressful to be the one you run down the hill, like you go for it. That's, mm. that's your choice. I want you to have that choice. There are some days where it's the right thing to do to just be stressed out. Like I, I need those days. I take those days when I need them. But I also want you to have an option down the right side of the hill mm. that feels calmer and more connected and healthier so that when the thought does rise up next time, I have an option. Do I want to do safety brain or connected brain? Um, so we're not just in the automatic habit loop. Hmm. And that visual, visualization is so important. You say, I, I use that with people of like visualizing how they want to be emotionally Yeah. based on how they were emotionally in the past. Nice. And, and right at that moment where they went off in the past, replace it with how they want to. Nice. I, I give this example because I was a baseball player in college and so forth. So with practice and practice and practice of where, when the ball was hit, where I went, it mm, became automatic. Right. So we're talking about creating automatic yes. responses exactly. to emotional reactions. Yeah. Yeah. And I can make the path down the right side of the hill by getting curious, by figuring out what pings me, by doing experiments on it, by turning the volume up or down. That forms the new path down the hill on the right side. And eventually I do have a choice. And I literally would not be alive today if I hadn't been flexing that muscle and creating that path down the snowy hill. Like my doctors literally say, 
it should be impossible for me to even speak at this volume with 10% lung capacity. Mm. I should not be able to even talk to you this loud. And right now I took my oxygen off yeah. and I'm talking this loud. It's amazing. It doesn't, it's not logical, but it's because it's the graceful relationships that I'm creating. I'm not saying my relationships are stress-free or there isn't like crazy things that go on. All of that's going to happen because we're human, but it's how, how you dance through that. It's the Fred and Ginger of like, how graceful can we move through it? What used to like come up and like completely pull me down and throw me off in a relationship now is like a little blip on the screen. And that's a muscle I've been working and using the blueprint of we, designing my relationships, cleaning out my own mind mm. um, has absolutely made it possible for me to stay alive. Mm. That's fantastic. I'm very lucky. Yeah, you are. <laughs> that brings to mind about how people avoid conflict because they haven't had good experiences of conflict as opposed to, I tell people, conflict is just to get understanding. So if you just see conflict as an opportunity to try to understand, then it brings in also what you're saying is the curiosity yeah. of what's going on with the other person. Why am I also responding? My volume is right. high in this way. Right. What is my ping? Then you go closer to repairing because... You're not marred into this just back and forth, back right. and forth. You're getting more curious, wanting to understand. And really, conflict is just a messenger in the system. It's just messages that say something matters. I, my whole system says, this matters, this matters, this matters. And I'm calling it conflict, and I turn on my safety brain, and I think I need to protect myself from you. But if I can pull back for a moment and say, oh, this is a message in the system that says, there's something I need clarity on. There's something that matters here and I don't have clarity. Then I can have a conversation with you about how to get to that clarity. And that's one of my favorite parts of the blueprint. So the questions for peace and possibility, the notion is like, okay, let's say you and I were going to buy a piece of property together or, or start a business or something. In our questions for peace and possibility component, I'm thinking about like, okay, if we were in a stressful moment uh, somewhere down the line, what would the, my most emotionally intelligent self ask? What kind of questions, statements, reminders would we be talking about that I won't be able to do when I'm actually upset with you? It's writing that down. But it's also saying like, okay, if you and I were in a fight six months from now, Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa were sitting in a chair in the corner of the room, <laughs> chances are we do it differently, right? Mm -hmm. So what do they represent that we can write in our document now? Mm. What would they ask us? What would they remind us about? Like, how do we capture that part of ourselves when our brain doesn't give us access to it? So now conflict becomes something different. The last component of the blueprint is short and long-term timeframes. And it's the notion that like we've written this design document together. If we have stress in the system, we make a short-term timeframe commitment of how long we're willing to go before we have a conversation for clarity. So it's the idea that like if you and I went on a hike and in like a five mile hike and in mile one, I got a stick in my shoe, I don't wait five miles to take it out, right? Mm -hmm. I stop. So same thing with a relationship. If there's noise in the system, stress, whatever it is, there's a stick in the shoe, like let's stop and take it out. So our short-term timeframe might be 24 hours or three days or something. And the commitment says, okay, like if we had a phone call this morning and like something didn't feel right and I had a knot in my stomach and our short-term time frame is 24 hours, my commitment is I'm going to contact you again within 24 hours to say, hey, Prepo, there's something like I know I want to get clarity on. Can we use our blueprint to have the conversation? Mm. So we, we reread the blueprint. So let me remind myself, let me go through your filing system of the files you gave me to tell me 
what your behavior means and what you're about. Let me read the story of us that says, oh, this is why I love Prepo. This is why I'm glad I'm doing this with him. Like I captured all that in writing ahead of time. So when I forget how much I like you, Mm. I can actually read about it. So I reread all that. Then we sit down with our document for clarity, not to resolve conflict, because I don't, I don't want to even, my relationship to conflict is different. Conflict in this body doesn't go over very well, but clarity does. I want to pay attention to the message in our relationship that says, wow, that pinged me. Like when you took my idea in that meeting the other day, that pinged me. I want to have a conversation for clarity around my values and your values and what went on and what we want to design because of it. So you get above the content and more about the intention of what it is that you want to communicate on that sort of level. Yeah. And so this is the interesting, the original document, it was called Questions to Return to Peace because we really put it in more as like a way to get back to a peaceful place. But what we realized over the years of doing these with people is that having the conversation because we had that moment of tension actually got us to a better place. It opened up more possibilities because there was stress in the system and we used it for clarity. So we changed the name for to questions to for peace and possibility because now, now we create questions that are like, if things are really going well and we want to turn up the volume on that, what do we want to talk about? Those questions are half of what goes on in that pr- section of the document. Like, let's talk about what even greater possibilities are if we're in flow. It's both. They're all messages in the system. I'm delighted or I'm frustrated. They're all just messages in the system. And that possibility brings those new narrow pathways of what to focus on instead of focusing on the problem, right? Right. Right. The aspect of what it is that we want. What can we, and the body then just responds to what the mind is thinking about of what we want. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I used to be a, maybe for six months I was a mediator Mm. years ago. And I really wanted to work with people in that, in that sense before I was a counselor. They were so focused on conflict resolution. Everybody was focused on resolving, resolving, right. resolving. That once they resolved something, there was something else to resolve. <laughs> and so for me, I was like, conflict resolution was not in my mind. It was conflict right. transformation yeah. that I wanted. So I, I, I quickly got out of that oh, field. Oh, that's so interesting. But I took it into my counseling practice more nice. of like, Every time we're focusing on something to solve, but not what's going on in the moment. Did you really get somebody to pay attention to you? Did you really feel that they had some compassion for you? Those little moments are transformational, not just resolving the content. Right. Right. Oh, that's a perfect way to put it. So many companies want that. They want, they want that resolution, but you're working on a whole different frame with these companies also. Yeah. I don't think actually that resolution is feeding anybody's soul. Because we're not actually looking at the landscape of desire invention. We're not looking at what we can create and what what does this particular landscape make possible. So by flipping that switch and getting people, again, it's an awareness phase. Like just noticing how often you might say like, oh, there's a problem here. Or what's the problem? Or we got to find a solution. Like just going through an awareness phase of noticing how often we do it. It's fascinating. I grew up with that. My mom would say, we've got a problem. Yes. We've got a problem. We'll worry about that tomorrow. Yeah. Why do we got to worry about it tomorrow? Yeah, I grew up with a lot of that focus on the problem. I know, yeah. I know. Yeah, I'm, I'm most interested in that because when you go into an organization, you're, you're really talking about the heartbeat and personality of a group. And when problems are something that they're focused on, there's a disconnect of people seeing each other, there's more anxiety, there's more pressure. 
Um, there's more loneliness, even yeah. if you're coming to work with a group of people every day. The black and white are right and wrong. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a it's rough on our system. Mm-hmm. Um, I just happen to have a system that pays attention to that way early. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's rough on everyone's system. I feel so grateful. Like I, I think I've said to you people, like on paper, I am an incredibly unhealthy human being. Like the number of things I, I wish, going wrong I wish in my I had body a video are crazy. To show people how incredibly <laughs> healthy you are. I'm actually one of the healthiest people you'll ever meet. Mm-hmm. Like, but that's because of the way I'm using my mind. And I'm not saying that like one of the, the actual number one side effect of this lung disease is depression. Mm-hmm. So it's not even that like, oh, I have this healthy brain and it's just my physical body. Like even when you have a brain that doesn't feel healthy, there are ways to start shifting how you relate to that part of your brain. And I'm excited to be in that conversation with people to look at health in a whole new way. Like what does health really look like? It may not be what we think it is. In fact, there's a blueprint I created that you you create a, a conversation between you and your health. Like if health mm-hmm. were its own entity and you had a conversation with it, what would health have to say to you? What do you have to say about your health? That's another place that you can really begin to create relationship instead of like a problem that needs fixing. It's been a really interesting thing, like not just this past year, I went through a whole series of like, crazy side effects of a new medication they put me on and like had one antibiotic after another, after another, which for my lungs is a really crazy, crazy experience. And then I got like six other things from that whole, like it was a a nutty place. I had more doctor visits and MRIs and hospital things in those like four months than I'd had in like six years. And I woke up one morning and I was like, oh my God, I'm living in problem solution model right now. Every doctor I go to looks at a very tunnel vision view of one particular thing in my body. No one's looking at the whole system. No one's looking at like what it is I desire. Right. It's all, and, and they're lovingly doing it. I have amazing relationships with my doctors, but it's very much problem solution oriented. So I stopped for a moment. I canceled all my appointments and I said, I've got to go internal first and take a look at what is it I desire on this landscape? Like, yes, this is what's going on in my body right now. And as I went internal and thought about it, what came up was I want to live in a joyful body. That's my desire to live in a joyful Mm. body. And that was a complete shift for me. Suddenly it was like, all right, now I'm going to pay attention out in the world to like, what does someone happen to say to me or what comes into my inbox of my email that seems to speak to a joyful body? Because if you had a baby tomorrow you wouldn't be like, I want my baby to have a joyful body. Okay, let's start with an MRI and some antibiotics. And like, (laughs) there's a whole different trek we go on when we're looking to create a joyful body. And I just have a, I have so much more life in me to be present when I'm doing that. And then my relationships are healthy. And then when my relationships are healthy, my body gets physically healthier. And that was the moment when things started shifting in my body. And a lot of the stuff that was going wrong began to change. And I would imagine then you have a healthy relationship with some of your boundaries to be able to say no to things that weren't bringing a joy in your body. Yeah, I know. That's a really interesting one. It's actually one of the things that happened in the first blueprint, this at the time State of Grace document that Zell and I created. So it's what I call ask for everything, say your truth. So that very first blueprint that Zell and I wrote, I said, okay, I'm going to ask this of you because I've never in the format of this design document for the relationship, I'm going to ask something I've never asked anyone before. I said, I have a a progressive lung disease that eventually I'm going to need more and more help from other people just because I'll have little lung capacity, right? 
And my, my whole orientation to the world was wanting to make sure I didn't ask for too many favors because I'd run out of them too soon. Mm. And so I was very like worried about when I would ask things of people. And I said, Zell, what I would love to do with you, if you're interested, I'd like both of us to ask for everything we want all the time, 100% of the time. But on the flip side, we have to commit to saying our truthful yes or no every single time. And he was in, he's like, nope, I can do that. But the craziest things came out of it that I never anticipated. And now I have that in all my blueprints that I do with people. And it's like one of the main ways that I live my life. So like very early on, I think it was like a week after we had done that, Zell and I were in the kitchen one morning. And um, if you've ever eaten an English muffin, when you pull them apart, there's usually one half that's a really dense side and one that's really light and fluffy. (laughs) And I jokingly said to Zell, I said, well, in the spirit of asking for everything, honey, I would like the fluffy side of every English muffin we ever have from now on. And he goes, are you kidding me? I hate the fluffy side of an English muffin. I always want the dense side. And it became sort of this idea of like how often we're not asking for things. And we would have both had the one good side, one bad side for the rest of the relationship when we actually didn't need to. I found out things that I never would have believed without that, like... So Zell's a very kinetic person, like he needs movement, right? So he loves to massage me. He actually craves it. Mm. I don't like massaging anyone, like especially with my wrist, like I'll massage you for two minutes and I'm done. So we'll be like getting in bed at the end of the night and he'll say to me like, oh, can I give you a massage before we go to sleep? And it's like, oh, honey, I'm too tired. Can we do it tomorrow? Like that's crazy, right? That's crazy Mm. that my husband wants to give me a massage. I wouldn't have believed that. I would have thought he was only doing it like he didn't want to do it, but he was doing it to be nice because of all the pain in my body. There's so many things that we both do for each other that we never would have believed were 100% true. And I love when Zell tells me no, because it means his yeses are true. So that's how you get good with, we we didn't use this word, but people use it, rejection. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really isn't. It's just his truthful yes or no. So just a no means that there's a, just a clear yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I love, I love the nose. Mm. Literally, I love the nose. Because then I can take it into my own body and say, okay, now what do I want to do with the no? I can either spend the rest of my relationship being annoyed by the no, or I could move on and do something else. So I, I come from a long line of people who um, need to clean up the sink. Literally everyone in my family is like crazy about cleaning up the sink. Like we clean up sinks in public restrooms. Don't even ask me why it's genetic. So when Zell and I first got together, like he gets in the bathroom and I don't, or the kitchen, whatever. I don't know how he does it, but he gets like water and stuff everywhere. And so I said to him, like in the spirit of asking for everything, can you just clean up the sink when you're done? And he goes, "Hmm, no, not really. I'm cleaning the sink once a week's more than enough for me. And so in that moment, I was like, okay, what I would have, what I, what I learned growing up would be like, oh, now I can be mad the rest of my life. Every time I see all the stuff around the mm-hmm. sink that I got to clean it and I got to clean it and I got to clean it. But instead it's cool. That's a hard no for him. I'm just going to clean the sink. It takes me two seconds, a lot less time than it would you take to be annoyed. You yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, and then the funny thing after probably a year or two in, he started cleaning the sink because ah. he realized he liked it not to please me but he noticed how much he liked having a clean sink. Mm. But that just ended up coming naturally. There wasn't stress between us because of it. Mm-hmm. And do you periodically check in with what once was somebody's yes is no longer yeah. a no? I, I remember, this really sits with me, my grandmother used to buy me German chocolate cake all the time, all the time. I loved it as a kid. But then I remember like 20 years old, I finally had to say, 
I don't, I don't like, like German chocolate anymore. anymore. You know, and she was appalled. And you know, I gave into it and just ate a couple pieces. Oh, she would, she wouldn't respect my my no. Right. But the aspect of that changes, and couples get really shocked. One way, I thought you liked that. I thought that's what we agreed upon. I thought, as opposed to really being able to go with more of the present aspects right. of shifts and changes. And that's where the values come in because. German chocolate cake in and of itself is not what your grandmother was about, but it was feeling like there's something I've given you out of love. It's how I've loved you. Right. And wait, you don't want my love? Like that's literally what she takes into her body when it's, you're not rejecting her love. So when you can look at like, okay, what is it that you value? What matters to you? And you can talk about like something that she can do for you that, that feels like love and you replace that. So like, I like to see it like relationships um, to me, I call it a love valve. So like a heart valve where like blood moves back and forth, right? Well, I think love does that in relationships. And so you can either create a relationship where you're, you're stretching the love valve and more and more love can flow back and forth between us, or you can do things to corrode the love valve. And like over time, I say yes when I mean no, I'm not really truthful with you, I'm not really present with you, like I'm literally corroding my love valve to the point where now it feels like there's hardly any love between us. Hmm. So if I need to say to you like, yeah, the way that you're loving me isn't working for me anymore, if I'm doing it from the position of like, I want to widen this love valve. I want us to like find out what really, like what lights me up today. It's why Zell and I not having the forever myth of like, let's just choose each other today is what we decided to do 20 years ago. And we literally still do that every day. <laughs> One mm. of us asked the other person, will you sleep with me tonight? Because early on in our relationship, we both had busy lives and we'd get together at the end of our day. And it was like, hey, will you end your day with me? Still, Zell happened to ask me about two hours ago. Happened to be him today. Some days it's me. But how do you stay present in why you're in it today? Hmm. And that grows the love valve. So when you can have the conversation of like, hey, this is what feels like love to me today. I'm doing it to grow my love valve with you, not to step on something that, you know, I thought was something you loved about me or I loved about you that isn't working anymore. It's just being more present in why we're doing, why we're in what we're in. And staying with that curiosity and interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. I know. It's so fun. This is sweet. Mm. Wow. Almost an hour went by. Oh my gosh. This is fantastic. That was fast. Yeah. Anything for some parting words to people that are hearing about when it comes to the idea of how to create some deep agreements for value systems and designing the relationships that they want? Anything that you can leave them with to... I just think even that awareness phase of like getting curious inside your own mind, what files do you have in your own head that make you see your relationships in a certain way? Just get curious there. Take a moment to design your relationship. The Blueprint of We is a great process. You can get a template and begin to design that for yourself and then use it on a regular basis to learn more and grow. But ultimately, like just start noticing every time you think of problems and solutions like, mm. how can you begin to go out into the world and invent something around what you desire? Mm. How can you change the landscape um, mm. and stop looking for problems? Because what you desire is just so much more life-giving. Well, I got to tell you one that came up for me. I was telling Rainbow just a couple of days ago, I said, I want to have a podcast with somebody that gets along with their ex, that has a <laughs> yes. good relationship with their ex. And I said to her, I don't know where I'm going to find that. I started focusing on, I don't know anybody that gets along with their ex uh, the way that I want nice. to 
to inquire about. Uh, and in our I conversation totally earlier, do. I found somebody who gets along with that. So I'm looking forward to having that conversation that with you. That would be awesome. Yeah. Bill left me a message not too long ago just saying, I can't ask for two better people to co-parent with than you mm. and Zell. Like literally the three of us have never had one argument about the kids. And Zell met the kids when they were three and five. So they've had two dads most of wow. their life. That's miraculous to me because yeah. I... I grew up in a family of divorce that my parents went in and out of separation for 12 years and still to their deaths, my father's death, would not speak to each other. Yeah, I had that too for so, 15 yeah, years. So yeah, there's a, there's a completely new way of doing it. And it's a beautiful, mm. beautiful way of transitioning that relationship container. So anytime you want to talk Good about on that, I love it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much, Maureen. This was Thank really Thank you so inspiring. much for yeah. what you're doing in the world. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. You too. Thank you. Relationships, Let's Talk About It is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting, PC of Asheville, North Carolina. For more on licensed counselor Prepo Teplitsky, visit heartsharecounseling.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling and psychotherapy, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice. Relationships, Let's Talk About It is produced by Auxbus. You can create your own professional podcast today, faster and easier. Try it for free at auxbus.com. That's A-U-X-B-U-S dot com. Auxbus. Auxbus.